Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide entitled Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. And we'll also tell you a whole lot about how NetSuite by Oracle can improve your business so you can stay on top of your numbers. NetSuite.com slash martini is where you'll want to go. So, Jim, let's start with our good martini. And the Democratic food fight is starting to heat up. No big surprise. We're just a couple of weeks away now from the first nights of Democratic debates. I know you can't wait. In previous primary seasons, you've had quite a bit of uh, pregame hysteria on Twitter, which is always uh, great fun to watch. But I'll look forward to that later this month. But now that Biden is the distinct front runner, obviously a lot of folks have the knives out for him. And the younger guys in the campaign are not being shy about the fact that they think he's yesterday's news. First of all, we've got South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who said Democrats can no more turn the clock back to the 1990s than Republicans can return us to the 1950s when talking about Biden. And then you've got Beto O'Rourke. He was on uh, Morning Joe with the whole cast of characters there. But Willie Geist asked the critical question. Here's what O'Rourke had to say. Why would you tell Democratic voters you are a better candidate than Joe Biden to become president? Because you cannot go back to the end of the Obama administration and think that that's good enough. We had real problems before Donald Trump became president. You had folks who were working two and three jobs just to make ends meet. You had 10 times the wealth in white America than you had in black America. You had nearly 40,000 gun violence deaths in this country every single year without any meaningful reform to our gun safety laws. Um, You had immigration reform that had been languishing for 30 years. And within the Obama administration, 400,000 people deported from this country in one year alone, destroying families and breaking up communities. He yammered on for a couple more minutes there, Jim, and eventually Willie Geist had to interrupt to sum up the point. So is Joe Biden a return to the past? He is. And, And that cannot be who we are going forward. The food fight has begun. Pop the popcorn for us. Yeah, I was going to say, I kept waiting for Beta O'Rourke to say, look, The problem with Joe Biden is he's a man who's living in his glory days of 2009 to 2016. And what America needs is a younger man who's living in his glory days of 2018. Um, Who can't move beyond that. So (laughs) it's interesting. Every time you see a primary begin, and this is kind of a bipartisan phenomenon, you get some folks on the side like, why do they have to be so negative? Why can't people just tout themselves? Look, voters only get one choice which means you have to make the case to the voters, I am the best choice. You can't say I am in the top three or four. I belong in that top tier. I'm pretty good. You know, you got to say I am the best choice and here's why. And that inevitably means drawing contrasts with your rivals. You have to say, look, they may have a lot of strengths. I may like them. We may have worked together in the past, but I am a better choice because of X. I have done something they have not done. I have avoided a mistake that they made. You know, you got to do something to say, this is why I'm better than that one. Look, three or four of these guys are not going to be on the debate stage. If you don't make the first debate, you're probably not making the second debate. You're not making the first two debates. You're sure as heck not making the third and fourth debates. The work is going to be fine for a while. Biden's going to be fine for a while. But I think we should see some punches thrown. I think this is a legitimate argument from the likes of Vader O'Rourke. 
Biden's been around a long time. I think it's a perfectly fair argument to say he's too old. He's he's too out of touch. He's past his prime. We, you know, at this moment for our party, we can't afford any fumbles. Now, whether Beto O'Rourke is the best person to make that criticism, well, you know, we can leave that debate for another day. But again, for those of us who look at this Democratic field and don't find any of them very appealing, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun for the next couple of weeks because these criticisms will come forward. And I think that the Democratic primary voters will have to take them seriously. You know, this really is an issue if you want to beat Trump, that you really shouldn't nominate somebody who's actually a couple of years older than him. Joe Biden is the consummate Washington insider. I've made the argument that he really isn't that much of a centrist, but it's safe to say that he is not on the same page as the Twitter left. And we'll see whether the Twitter left really has that much punch in this primary process. But then again, they can sure as heck set the tone for a lot of the coverage and the discussion of the debates. Look, as you said, just, you know, invest in popcorn. Orville Redenbacher is going to have a tough time keeping up with demand. You know, for all the frustrations of hearing about Democrats all day long, watching them fight should be a lot of fun. Yeah, two different things I want to mention here before we leave the, the good martini. First of all, how do you think Obama feels? You know, he was the darling of the party for eight years, probably still is in many circles, and now you've got the new generation gone. January 2017, that was so yesterday, man. It's time to move on. Forget him. You know, I really think you could make the argument that a lot of what's driving the radicalism in the Democratic Party today is a belated internal frustration and analysis of what you know you and I were around we started this podcast a little bit into Obama's presidency but if you think back to 2007 2008 remember Oprah saying he is the one you know and, and the people chanting Obama Obama and they were making this silly hand sign that people had, somebody at Slate had argued that he had invented a new emotion called elevation <laughs> and uh, there's a guy in the San Francisco Chronicle who argued that he was a supernatural being called a light worker who is going to bring enlightenment to all of us. Now, some of us would look at this, the president's schedule and say, yes, he is indeed a light worker with all the golfing he's doing. But there was so much optimism. There was so much. This was it. And then Nirvana did not come. We are not living in paradise. In fact, he could even keep the House for more than two terms. Obamacare turned out to be a lot more of a mixed bag. You know, every Democrat's running on health care this cycle. But Obamacare was supposed to fix this stuff, right? So there's this realization on the part of Democrats that they had an absolute faith in a political messiah, and he did not deliver. Now the frustration is, oh, well, the problem couldn't be Obama. The problem is the system. The problem is the Supreme Court. The Constitution is the problem. This idea of we need to do away the filibuster, you know, this, this frustration, that's, I think, why they're looking in further left and more radical directions. Now, very, very well said. And the other thing is, you mentioned that some folks get awkward and nervous when people from their party start attacking each other in the primary. And on the Republican side, every time it happens, somebody says, don't forget the 11th commandment of Ronald Reagan, thou shalt not speak ill of thy fellow Republican. Well, guess what? Ronald Reagan spoke ill of a lot of really different ideas that his Republican opponents had. The guy challenged a sitting Republican president, for heaven's sake. He didn't just sit around going, Jerry Ford, he's a really nice guy but I think I'd be slightly better. Please vote for me. You know, it's a lovely idea. By the way, you notice everybody always invokes the 11th commandment when they are the front runner <laughs> yeah. and they don't want to be attacked. <laughs> what they really mean is, thou shalt not speak ill of me. Absolutely. Well, Beto knows his numbers. So does Biden. Biden's north of 30 in most polls. Beto is at 2%, which as we reported earlier in the week is losing to not sure, at least in Iowa. But they know their numbers, and if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on and so on. It's just a big, 
inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and human resources instantly, right from your desktop or your own phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. NetSuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And when Joe Biden's not there, the Middle East usually is. And so that's where we're back to today. This is the New York Times. I think a lot of folks heard this on the news when they woke up this morning. Two oil tankers came under attack on Thursday in the Gulf of Oman, forcing their crews to abandon ship and setting at least one vessel ablaze. A month after four tankers were damaged in the same waterway, a vital thoroughfare for much of the world's oil products. The attacks escalated tensions in an already tense region where Iran has long been at odds with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and they are backing opposite sides in the civil war in Yemen. Relations between the United States, allied with the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and Iran have also worsened. The Norwegian paper VG quoted a frontline spokesman as saying that its ship was on fire, that all 23 crew members had been rescued. The other tanker, a Panamanian-flagged ship operated by a Japanese company, was carrying methanol, and the Iranian state media reported that it, too, was on fire. We talked about the tensions that led John Bolton to convince the president to send our forces to the Persian Gulf, and this is only going to escalate things a lot more. You know, Greg, people are going to think I'm trying to shoehorn in a reference to Between Two Scorpions, and I'm really not. But, <laughs> you know, if you read enough thriller novels, this is usually the sort of thing that happens in like the first 30, 40 pages. You know, you set the stage of U.S.-Iranian tensions. We knew the moment we declared the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps sponsored terrorism and put them on the sanctions list and other things like that that there was a good chance the Iranians were going to attempt to retaliate. And when Iran retaliates, they don't do financial stuff. They don't send a sternly worded letter. They like to blow stuff up. And then there was the sabotage of port facilities over in Saudi Arabia. And we knew at some point there was going to be something more. Now, look, we do not know for certain that this was the Iranian government, but let's face it, the motive, means, opportunity, the timing, all of it points in their direction. I don't think they've had mass casualties because of these attacks yet. But as long as they're firing missiles or whatever they did to uh, cause these explosions on these boats, at some point, this is going to end up having a massive loss of life. Oh, by the way, dear environmentalists, you're frustrated about carbon emissions. I figure trying to blow up oil tankers is bad for carbon emissions. Don't you think I'm right on that, Greg? Yeah, I'd say so. All in all, this is a kind of an ominous development. I imagine our military was expecting something along these lines. We can't necessarily protect every single tanker that goes through the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. But you know what? I remember back in the late 80s, early, uh, yeah, I guess it was only late 80s, tail end of the Reagan administration, that the U.S. Navy started escorting tankers. and They started forming convoys and things like that in order to dissuade the Iranians from further harassment. I remember at the time they were going to say they were going to put mines in the Strait of Hormuz. So hopefully this doesn't worsen, but I think everybody should be on higher alert out there. And uh, it's likely that Iran has not done it, made its last move to punish us for having the audacity to punish them for being state sponsors of terror. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim, because that bad martini was pretty sobering. 
This one's going to be a lot of fun, assuming you don't take anything said in this clip seriously, because it really shouldn't be. The best book written by somebody named Jim this week is clearly Between Two Scorpions. (laughs) There's another Jim that we refer to on this podcast once in a while who also has a book out this week, and so he's being interviewed by his colleagues and elsewhere. His name's Jim Acosta. He's the CNN White House correspondent. Uh, He's quite full of himself, as he will prove once again in this clip. CNN definitely doing their best to promote the book. Don Lemon hosting Jim Acosta on his show last night and uh, making the case that CNN is playing it right down the line, man. They're not interested in a political agenda at all. They only want the truth. Here's Don Lemon to start. For all those people who say, oh, you know, the the, the press, CNN hates Trump and the CNN is, uh, you know, uh, loves the Democrats. I watched Manu Raju with Nancy Pelosi, who yeah. clearly did not want to answer Manu's questions today, That's even right. in her body language. And you know what? He persisted and he asked her the tough questions anyway. So of anyone, a Democrat or Republican, regardless of who it is, if you hold a position of power, we, the journalists at CNN, are going to question you about it, whether you like it or not. That's right. We're here to hold their feet to the fire. And just because we are pro-truth doesn't mean that we are anti-Trump. And, you know, as I write throughout this book and I try to close it out on a, on a hopeful note, we are not the enemy of the people. We are defenders of the people. And we want to defend the people because we're devoted to the people. You and I, Don, uh, our, our families, our parents, our kids, uh, our loved ones, we all think about all of those folks when we come into the office and do this job on a daily basis. Uh, we're not here to spin things or uh, you know, color things a certain way. We're here to give the people reliable, accurate information on a daily basis. That's why we all come into work every day. Yeah. We, get a, we get a high out of it. Okay, that last line was true. He definitely gets a high <laughs> out of it, especially all the attention. Jim, have you ever seen someone either more self-deluded or feeding you a bigger line of bull than Jim Acosta right there? Well, I want to make a couple observations here. First of all, so he posted pictures of himself signing books in Barnes and Noble in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, I don't go to that one as much as I used to, but I, I've, I've been there. There's a giant stack of books and nobody in the background appears to be buying them. If you've ever wondered like, why does you know, author X not do more book signings? Publishers are terrified. They're terrified of doing them. And either because the timing is bad or you vastly overestimate the level of interest from, from readers, you end up having like six people there. And it ends up becoming embarrassing for the author, embarrassing for the bookstore. Uh, embarrassing for the publisher and all that kind of stuff. Now, I noticed in these pictures, as I said, nobody, you know, he's signing all these books. It's a giant stack. It looks like there's 30 on the table. Oh, by the way, you know, there's nobody who's discernibly there buying them. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that clearly he's, he's signing the books. There's somebody who's taking the picture of him. There's nobody around him in, in any of the pictures. There's, there's one guy in the back, in the far in the back browsing. Actually, I think the guy's looking at his phone. So as somebody's, you know, observed... You know, it reminds me of those pictures of people on Instagram where they have no pictures of their, their friends. And they, they basically are like, oh, no, I'm having a good time. You just, they're just cropped out of the photo. You just can't see them or something like that. Uh, one other detail. So if the book is signed, it really can't be signed back to the publisher. So by signing all 30 of them, there's 30 more sales. <laughs> 30 that will at least not get returned to the publisher and get pulped at the end of the publication life. You know, there are a lot of times, this, you know, would it be a better world if Trump stopped using the term enemy of the people, a term that probably is better applied towards ISIS and Al-Qaeda and people want to kill Americans? Sure, it would be better for that. But man, you know, Acosta makes it tough. Acosta makes it really frustrating because he really does, you know, tout himself as some sort of grand hero. And I don't think you can put him in the same breath as Jamal Khashoggi. I don't think you can put him in the same breath as those who get sent to jail 
in places like Myanmar or reporters all over the Middle East, you know, or in Russia. Look, those folks really do risk their lives reporting on the regime. And, you know, it's unfortunate that Costa goes to cover the president and the crowd, you know, yells nasty things to him. I'm, that's, I'm sure that's really an unpleasant experience. But if that's the worst thing that happens to you for reporting the truth as you see it about the administration and, and that and some mean presidential tweets, that's really not that bad. That's all covered by the First Amendment. The First Amendment that protects Acosta's right to report the news as he sees fit also protects the right of all those people to say Jim Acosta is a doofus. That's, that's how the First Amendment works. I don't know if he was the one who made the comparison to firefighters. But, you know, look, I, having spent my entire career in journalism, fellow journalists, please stop comparing ourselves to firefighters, to cops, to first responders, to soldiers. Look, what we do is important, but most of us do not encounter anything remotely close to the danger that cops and firefighters and first responders and, and people in uniform do. Can reporters encounter danger? Yes, I described the examples in, in other countries. In the United States, you probably don't encounter that much many risks to your life, uh, threats to your life. Maybe if you report on the cartels, maybe you record on, on gangs and criminal groups, then yeah, maybe you are uh, uh, taking on a certain amount of physical risk to yourself. And that should be saluted for its coverage. But standing in the White House is really not one of the tough gigs in journalism. It's really not one of the riskier ones. It's really not one that... Uh, uh, I think really should be up there on the, in the category of heroic. It can be important. It can be uh, worthwhile. Although I think actually very much could argue that the White House beat is not as important as it used to be, um, in part because you ask questions of a, pre- of a press secretary and the press secretary either answers your questions or doesn't answer your questions. Or in this White House, they haven't had a press conference in a really long time. Um, Jim Costa has constructed this heroic narrative all about himself. And it's Maybe it's a very human trait and maybe it's forgivable, but he turns it up to 11, as Spinal Tap would say. And uh, Don Lemon is right there to help him. And instead of, instead of doing that, maybe it would help if somebody who actually cared about Jim Acosta said, you know, as to quote the cinematic masterpiece, Top Gun, your ego is writing checks that your, 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 your record can't cash. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people could learn a lot from that movie. Um, and so in the end, I, I, you know, Acosta really does need to, you know, to, to put his ego in check. Because it's kind of fascinating how much he talks about, you know, for the people, he's doing these things. And yet at the same time, uh, he writes so much about himself. Jim Acosta's favorite topic of the entire Trump presidency is Jim Acosta. (laughs) Without question. So let's do the right thing here, people. Let's have the right Jim win the book race here. I saw he's going to have his book come out the same day. I thought about, should I tweak him? Should I tell people, buy the right Jim, the right book from the right Jim? I'm like, ah, you know, that'd be kind of cheesy. That'd be kind of ludicrously self-promotional. I shouldn't do that. So I tweeted that out saying that I wasn't going to do it, but I left the, the Amazon link in there just in case. If you just did decide. And Greg, I think that was when I had the single biggest jump in a six-hour period. So if you did happen to buy my book just to spite Jim Acosta, thank you and God bless you. <laughs> You'll take it. Absolutely. Jim, have a great day. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And do not forget to visit our friends over at NetSuite by Oracle. You can find them at netsuite.com slash martini and get that free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. And tune in again Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>